Blog Talk Radio. Let me tell you about something new. A new show called G's Power. G's Power. Real talk for real saints. Are you ready? And it's for real. Welcome to G's Power Hour live every weekday at 11.30 a.m. on Never Had It So Good Entertainment Network. Your host, G, will bring you informative and entertaining guests and a variety of topics in a way that you can absorb and enjoy. Listen in weekdays and call in at 516-387-1944. We love interaction. All shows can be downloaded if you miss one or found on iTunes the next day. G's Power Hour is powered by Never Had It So Good Sports Media Network. Good morning, brothers and sisters, kings and queens, angels and saints. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today, and thank you for coming back for Wellness Wednesday. We try to do it the second Wednesday of each month, although we could probably do it every Wednesday or every day of the year because there's always something uh, in terms of a discovery, negative or positive, regarding uh, health issues. And we just try to do a little bit of what we can here on G's Power Hour to make sure that you are informed as much as we can and give it to you and that you're safe as well and, and taking care of yourself because, you know, if you haven't got your health, you just kind of <laughs> don't know what's going to happen. So we are privileged and honored to have back with us a cardiologist that has helped us break down some of the information as it comes in. And, um, you know, because even though he's a cardiologist, which is, you know, I guess the center of, of us all, you know, the, our hearts, you know, he, everything kind of ties in. So he's the one that can help us get our questions answered. Dr. Taiwan Tillman, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well this Wednesday morning. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. Thank you so much. Appreciate you coming back. So where do we want to begin? Uh, because like I said, there's always something. Well, I think uh, one of the things that we had mentioned previously was this month is actually Sickle Cell Awareness Month. I think that would be a great place to begin. Okay. Yeah, I, I really – and just – I, people who have listened to the show know that, you know, I've touched on this before, um, and it's important because I I have a concern that things that don't necessarily get touched on or don't affect the masses kind of tend to get lost, and we have to kind of keep some of these issues front and center, especially when it comes to uh, African-American health because uh, we are the ones that kind of get lost in the sauce, so to speak, just kind of get, I guess, waylaid in the system. And then we also have to do a better job of holding ourselves and our, you know, healthcare professionals accountable in terms of making sure that we get the questions answered and we get the treatments that we need. So before we start talking about treatments, we need to kind of have a better understanding of what sickle cell disease is and need to, help everybody understand that it doesn't necessarily just affect African-Americans. I um, heard a story recently in terms of um, a young girl, and I think it was a young Hispanic girl possibly, that uh, could, was in, um, the, on the, in the border situation and could not get the treatment that she needed. And I 
you know, I got to look up this story so I can post it, but I think she ended up losing her life as a result. But let's talk about what exactly sickle cell disease is. Well, I think um, one of the things I'm going to go back just a bit. You mentioned, um, you know, the importance why we raise, try to raise awareness for things like this. And as I mentioned, it is Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and it's very important that um, we raise awareness to problems like this because, number one, you need money and dollars for research. So when you're looking for cures for all these problems, think about the COVID vaccines when we're in the middle of the COVID COVID epidemic. It was a lot of money that got um, pushed towards all these companies that made them really start to try and do research to crank out these vaccines in a very short amount of time. It was very successful because there was billions and billions of dollars put towards it. And that's the same for any other medical problem. The more money that there is that goes towards research, the more motivated companies are to come up with with solutions and cures. And as we talk more and more about sickle cell, you'll start to see that it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of research to ultimately come up with a cure for um, sickle cell disease. And uh, the other thing is you you want the community to be aware so that you know, people will recognize they have some of these symptoms. And uh, also, uh, one of their primary goals, at least the Tickle Cell Foundation, is that they want to sort of standardize screening for newborns and for families to detect sickle cell disease early in, uh, in newborns so that, you know, you know early before you start to present with some of the symptoms and complications, you know, a little later in life in early childhood. So that's some of the reasons why, you know, it's important that we do um, things like a sickle cell, aware, sickle cell awareness month and that we talk about things like this in public like we're doing today. And uh, so your question was, what exactly is sickle cell disease? Sickle cell is a genetically inherited um, disease, and it's inherited as what we call an autosomal recessive uh, trait. So basically, in order to get sickle cell disease, they have full-blown sickle cell disease, you need two copies of the gene one from each parent. If only one of your parents has a sickle cell trait, um, you're not going to get sickle cell disease. You can have sickle cell trait where you only have one copy, and we can talk a little bit more about that later too, but when we talk about true sickle cell disease or patients come in with the recurrent episodes of what we call sickle cell crises, those are patients that have two copies of the gene and have what we call either sickle cell anemia or sickle cell disease. It can be um, described either way, but those are the two terms that we'll use to talk about sickle cell disease. And so as we're talking today, we'll be talking about patients mostly with full-blown sickle cell disease. And uh, what it is is you have a genetic abnormality that causes, that affects the shape of the hemoglobin molecule, which is what makes up red blood cells. Typically, red blood cells have a round shape, and they flow smoothly through arteries and veins in the body, and they just go on about their business and don't cause any problems. However, if you have sickle cell disease, the red cells are not in the normal round shape. They tend to be in the shape of a sickle. A sickle is that tool that, you know, the old folks used to use when they were chopping grain, and it's what the what the Grim Reaper carries, that thing on a stick. That is a sickle, and it's called mm-hmm. sickle cell disease because the shape of the red cells sort of take a sickle shape, and that sickle shape doesn't flow as smoothly through blood vessels, particularly the smaller blood vessels. They tend to be sticky. They tend to clump and they tend to clot off blood vessels. So they cause problems with blood clots. They can cause problems with damaging organs where the clots develop. And so you get all these end organ problems, problems with the kidneys, problems with the spleen, problems um, with the lungs, problems with the brain, 
And so sickle cell disease causes lots of different problems simply because the shape of the cells change. So the root of the problem is the shape of the cells are changed due to a genetic abnormality. So it's interesting as you were talking and you you were talking especially about whether or not you have the trait and whether or not you have the disease and, and what could lead up to it. You know, when we court, when we meet people, when we date, when we think about people in terms of becoming serious partners in our lives, we talk about a variety of different things, finances and, you know, backgrounds and whatnot. Health is not necessarily one of those discussions that we have with someone that we're trying, we're thinking about um, binding our lives to for, for the rest of our lives. And that is something that we should have a discussion with, not necessarily, you know, about, not necessarily to rule out anyone, but just to know, okay, this is what could possibly happen. And this is, so we know how to deal with it and proceed from there. And it's the screening of kids, uh, of babies early, I think is a wonderful idea because then, you know, there's, it eliminates some of the surprises along the way in terms of why am I feeling this pain? Why am I feeling this discomfort? Um, you know, uh, how to manage diets and, and lifestyles accordingly. Um, I had one friend that uh, ended up going into the Air Force and wanted to be a pilot. And it was then that they discovered that they couldn't because they had the trait. You right, know, right. Uh, would not allow them to fly right. um, for a living. So uh, it's it's very. I'm glad you you brought up a couple of those points because I think it's, it's important that it's not like I said it's not brushed you know under the rug that we we have to know okay it's out there and and who who and how to address it. So, so and, and that's very interesting. You gave a very concrete example of why this is important, right? And so if you're screening kids for sickle cell and even sickle cell trait at a young age, then things like that don't happen. Um, in your particular example, one of the things, most of the time people that have sickle cell trait, they don't have the crises and the complications and the end organ damage that I mentioned earlier. But there are some mm-hmm. extreme circumstances where they can have sickle cell crises and they can have major problems. One of those is high altitude, stress at high altitude, exertion at high altitude. So if you're a pilot, in the Air Force, and you're flying, and you're under very high stress, whether it's because you're doing maneuvers or because you're pulling a lot of Gs in a jet, um, it's very probable that even in a patient that just has a sickle cell trait, that that could precipitate a crisis. There are um, a lot of patients, a lot of people that have sickle cell trait that are athletes. And what they found when they've done some research is that there are <clears throat> a lot of athletes that have died from sudden death that actually died from sickle cell crisis that they didn't know about at the time. And so what they found is, <clears throat> excuse me, what they found is that people that have a sickle cell trait, athletes that have sickle cell trait, have a 30 to 40% higher rate of sudden cardiac death as compared to people that don't have sickle cell trait. And another concrete example that I have personally and this happened last night. There is, there was a kid that a, a football player that died a few years ago, a young kid, 15 years old. And mm. I wasn't involved with his care, but a friend of mine was. 
and it was a young kid that was doing fine at practice, and all of a sudden he got tired, he fell on the ground, and ultimately over a series of different events over the next couple of hours, the kid passed away, even though they did everything right from the moment that he first started to appear fatigued. And Mm. they did lab work, and they did all these other things, and they did EKGs and strips and resuscitative efforts, and nothing was successful. And my friend who was a trainer for that patient sent me all these records to ask me if I could figure out what may have happened so this may not happen. In the end, there was nothing obvious. But then after looking at some of this stuff and thinking about what we're going to talk about today, I went back to that kid and I thought about that kid. And then I wondered, does that kid have sickle cell trait? Did he have sickle cell trait and he got exerted and overheated and dehydrated and that could have precipitated a sickle cell crisis, which sometimes once it gets to a certain point, you know, it's irreversible. And that, Mm. you know, so that's something that I personally have to go back and reassess and talk to her because he may have brothers or sisters that may have sickle cell trait. And so it's something to follow up on. And it's just another concrete example of why doing things like this is, is so important. Yeah, because if you don't talk about it, you don't think about it sometimes. You know, what is the saying, out of sight, out of mind, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that if, if you find that out, um, if you wouldn't mind sharing that result, if you find that out, let us I know. I will. I'll because I will. Yeah, because that that is, that would be something interesting to find out. Because then you have to adjust how you test and how you treat um, the the, uh, the patient, you know. And then, like you said, whatever you find out from this could possibly help other family mem- other family members if, right. if it is that this person had uh, something with regards to sickle cell trait or sickle cell uh, anemia. Um, right. We're going to take a quick break. We are here with Dr. Taiwan Tillman, uh, and right now we're talking about sickle cell disease. It is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, and like we were saying, you know, if we don't talk about it, we can't address it, and, um, you know, it may be, you know, who knows, it may be wider spread than, than we initially think, you know, because if no one's talking about it, uh, no one knows to look for it. This is G's Power Hour. I've never had it so good entertainment, and we will be right back. Over the past 60 years, Dove Beauty Bar's superior formula has remained unchanged. But when it comes to beauty, everything changed. Together, we redefined beauty. We said no to stereotypes and yes to every type. We let go of judgments and embraced what makes us unique. We're proud to have been there with you, caring for you every step of the way. Here's to the next 60 years. Having a wedding, reception, family reunion, planning a banquet, or some other fundraising event. Need to share your knowledge through a workshop or seminar, or it's a difficult time and you need to plan a wake or repast. Let us help. At our gatherings, let us reduce the stress and make the occasion memorable, treasured. Call our gatherings at 407-968-9387 or email ourgatherings at yahoo.com. Let us help plan your special event. 
Good morning. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we're here with Dr. Taiwan Tillman, and we are um, discussing sickle cell disease. This is National Sickle Cell Awareness Month. And um, one of the things that I was just looking over uh, an article, uh, a study that uh, this article is from March of this year, um, says that sickle cell disease cuts 20 years from life expectancy, that um, the average person uh, with the uh, disease can expect to live 52.6 years following birth. Um, And so when you know you have probably a lesser time frame in terms of living your life, you kind of live it differently, you know, don't you? I would expect, I can't say from personal experience, but I would expect so. I I do have uh, some experience mostly with kids with sickle cell disease. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you know, they're unaware of that, and they don't have that type of foresight. But Mm -hmm. um, it's it's interesting because those kids are so in tune with their health because they're constantly, you know, having these problems and seeing their doctors and seeing other kids that have sickle cell disease. And it sort of becomes just a part. It becomes a part of their life, almost like a you know another extracurricular activity because it's just a daily thing they have to deal with. And when you look at sickle cell disease, you know you mentioned it's not just a disease of African Americans. It also occurs in Hispanics. It occurs in you know some countries in Southern Asia and the Middle East as well. So it's not just African American disease. But if you look at the United States, any given time there are probably a hundred thousand individuals that have uh, sickle cell disease, true sickle cell disease. And that's not a lot when you're talking about, you know, some type of illness that's going to generate a lot of money and a lot of research and, you know, ultimately leading to some cure. And so it's one of those things that you really have to get out there and try to get the public to be aware of and try to get um, funding to be aware of so that you can generate um, research for for this disorder. But um, if you look at Worldwide, there's probably about 5 million people, however, that have sickle cell trait. So sickle cell trait is everywhere around us. It's just that sickle cell disease is not all that common. And for that mm-hmm. reason, it's one of those things that it just it's not on the radar, not on the radar that much. But I think um, just to delve a little bit more into sort of what these people have to deal with, um, we talked about you know, what creates the problem, the shape of the uh, red blood cell causes all these problems in, within the blood vessel. And so the most common problem that you'll see with sickle cell patients is that they have sickle cell crises, which the hallmark of that is pain. And it could be mm-hmm. pain in the joint where there's, you know, micro clots in the in a knee joint that causes a lot of pain and swelling in that joint. It could be, you know, many strokes. Even little kids start to have strokes at young ages because those little sickle cells will get in the smaller vessels of the brain and block off that area, cause strokes. And you're talking many strokes over a period of time. So micro strokes may occur that have no associated symptoms. And over time, those start to build up and you get larger and larger areas of the brain damage where they then start to have physical manifestations of those multiple micro strokes. Um, It can damage the kidneys and cause kidney dysfunction. One of the more common things is it can damage the spleen and multiple what we call infarcts or areas of the spleen that are damaged and ultimately 
killed by microinfarctions or blood clots, mm-hmm. causes the spleen to no longer f- function effectively, and that causes them to be susceptible to infection. So one of the more common things that they can die from is different types of infection. And so you're talking strokes, you're talking um, infections of any type, um, particularly from certain types of bacteria, but lots of infections are a problem as well. And uh, kidney problems, in some cases even kidney failure. So lots of things that they have to deal with, and you're talking about lifespan. That's why lifespan can be greatly shortened because over time, you know, these things start to add up. The complications start to add up. And uh, it markedly affects lifespan. So you're talking 52 years on average, I think women probably a few more years, maybe 55, 56, men a few fewer years, maybe 49 on average um, for men. And so, yes, they certainly live a shorter lifespan. Sickle cell trait, however, they don't have, uh, tend not to have, mm-hmm. they have a regular lifespan. So um, in, in general, sickle cell trait is almost asymptomatic for most people. Most people don't know they have it unless they've been screened and appropriately identified. Any uh, questions with, about? With the, with the heat, isn't heat a big factor also with regards yes. to sickle cell anemia? And with the heat yes. that we've been having, the record heat, um, this is posing a big problem right now. Well, not just for uh, people with sickle cell, but um, diabetes as well. This heat has not been no mm-hmm. joke. Right. And so there are there are stressors, and that can not just emotional stress, but stress, physical stressors on the body that can precipitate uh, sickle cell crises. And so the most common is probably, for most people, probably heat and dehydration can uh, mm. create these uh, crises. And as I mentioned earlier, that can also occur even in people trait, just a sickle cell trait if it's rather extreme. And um, so certainly heat, certainly dehydration, certainly illnesses like um, some type of infection can cause it. And um, those are things that, if you are a sickle cell patient that you're taught to avoid. So you always teach sickle cell patients to stay very well hydrated. If they're going to be out in the heat or doing something strenuous, make sure they stay well hydrated. Um, make sure that they're very vigilant if they get any type of infection. Um, make sure they always have pain medications available for sickle cell crises. Um, when somebody does come in with a sickle cell crisis, what do you do? You hydrate them because most of the time they have some level of dehydration and you give them pain medications and the crisis resolves itself. And you tend to see, you know, when people, when sickle cell patients are little kids, they have doting parents that, you know, take good care of them and the doctors educate them really well. So those patients generally do very well as the patients get a little older and they start to become teenagers and a little bit rebellious and they want to do everything that everybody else is doing you start to see a lot more sickle cell crises because they're not staying hydrated. They may start to drink alcohol, which can be dehydrating. They may be doing more sports and out in the heat and doing things like that. And so you start to see more of these sickle cell crises, you know, in teenagers. And as they get older, um, you know, when patients start to get in their later 30s and 40s, they start to develop a lot of the debilitating disorders that come along with the chronic disease that is sickle cell disease. And so you start to talk about the problem of strokes and prior infections and joint problems and so forth. And so they're not nearly as active when they get into their, you know, into their fourth and maybe early fifth decades where the lifespan starts to come to an end. 
then, so one thing I will say to everybody, because I mean, I, I'm not a big water drinker and I, it's a force issue, mm. but I'm, I'm, I'm constantly working on it. And one of the things I would say, like, if you go out to a restaurant or if you go to someone else's house or even when you're sitting there and, you know, at your home and you're getting ready to, let's say, watch a movie or watch a game or whatever you're going to do, ask for water first or with. Like if when they come when your server comes to the table and asks you what can I get you to drink, say water and whatever else it is that you're going to drink, but make sure that the water is clear and present on the table because you you know if you don't ask for it, sometimes they will not bring it. Well, a lot of times they won't bring it anymore. They used to be the first thing that they would bring. It used to be a staple. Now you kind of have to ask for it. So make sure you ask for it. And make sure maybe you're taking sips of water in between whatever it else that you're eating or drinking, just so that you're getting something. You know, so that's that's the yes. suggestion that I have. I would, rec- I would recommend if you're drinking an alcoholic drink, one to one for every alcoholic drink you drink, drink an equal amount of water, because alcohol tends to be a diuretic that makes you urinate a little more, and mm-hmm. you need to replace that. And also, if you're drinking water along with the alcohol, you're going to drink a lot less. And it's going to be cheaper for you, too. Yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But, yeah, I mean, make make sure that you're you're having that in between so that you, you aren't getting dehydrated or as dehydrated, you know. And, and once you start doing that consciously, then it just kind of falls in like a habit eventually. So, you know, it, you just got to keep at it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, what? Okay, so you you talked about some things in terms of of what to do. Uh, I wanted to ask you. So if you, for example, if they aren't testing uh, or running a battery of tests, should you insist as a parent um, on a battery of, of tests for your child for your you, newborn? Yes, and so it's gonna it's probably gonna vary state by state what they and so Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things you know i think that's on their platform this year and probably every year to be honest with you where they're trying to get standardized testing across the country so everybody gets tested and i i assume that would be testing for you know true sickle cell disease sickle cell trait across the board so everybody gets tested so things like what happened with your cousin doesn't occur where you're you know 22 years old and you're in the military and you decide you want to be a pilot until you know because guess what Surprise! You tested positive for sickle cell trait, or you have athletes that are in college and they're playing sports and they're you know they're late teens or early twenties and all of a sudden they have the sickle cell crisis because they never knew they mm-hmm. had sickle cell trait. And so those are things that um, that they're focusing on and trying to accomplish with this platform of uh, sickle cell awareness month. And I think it'll be helpful overall if you look at. Most research that is done, if you look at research for you name it, COVID viruses, hypertension, heart attacks, and stroke, and cancers, African Americans are always, by and large, underrepresented in those studies. And it's it's a function of where the studies are done, how they do the recruiting, and so forth. And so a lot of times the results of these studies aren't necessarily applicable to all populations because all populations weren't represented in the study group. And Mm so men tend to be overrepresented in a lot of those studies as well. And I'll give an example of how studies can be skewed. A lot of the medical data that we get, you'll see a lot of studies come out of the Mayo Clinic. I trained at the Mayo Clinic. And 
I lived there for quite a few years, and what you'll notice is there are very few African-American people in that area. A lot of the studies that they do are based on the patients in that area, probably 98% Caucasian population. And so all of their studies have this skew where you don't have a very diverse study group involved in the study. And I was there for five years. I never saw a single sickle cell patient. I did medical school in Georgia. There was a sickle mm. cell, a specialty sickle cell center at my medical school, so we saw them all the time. And so if you see an African-American patient come in with chest pain in Rochester, Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic that comes into the emergency mm-hmm. room, everybody's going to be thinking heart attack. Everybody's thinking heart attack. He's, you know, 22 years old, severe chest pain, crushing chest pain, sweating, looks in severe extreme discomfort. Everybody's thinking heart attack. That same patient walks in in Augusta, Georgia, and everybody's going to be thinking sickle cell crisis. And they're going to be right. I've seen that. And the reason I say that is I've seen that patient elsewhere, and he made it to me on the floor as a potential heart attack. And I walk into the room and I asked him, what's going on? He said, I think I'm having a sickle cell crisis. They think I'm having a heart attack. Wow. (laughs) He got fluids, and an hour later, he felt perfectly fine. And it was just one of those things where the ER doctor was just focused on chest pain, not his history of sickle cell disease, not his totality as a patient. And that doctor may have been somewhere where he's never even seen a sickle cell patient. And so it's just one of those things where awareness is certainly important, not for just the general population, but also for physicians. So when you are selecting a doctor, should you ask that doctor, like, you know, you go to your general practitioner or or whatever, should you ask that doctor about their experience in um, sickle cell disease or if they have any or, you know, and do you make your judgment that way? Or I, I guess maybe do you ask about not necessarily just sickle cell, but what do you know that primarily affects uh, African-Americans? Uh, how, how much, you know, what kind of studies have you done in that? And then maybe make your decision in terms of whether or not you stick with that doctor. How important is that? Well, I think certainly if you have sickle cell disease, I think that's very important. But you more than likely, if you have sickle cell disease, you'll have a specialist um, that helps like manage Like a hematologist, your... right? Yes. And so you'll have, you know, a lot of, your doctor will have a lot of support. And so to choose your doctor on something that's that rare and I don't want to say niche, but that's rare that you're most likely never will experience probably is Mm -hmm. not a good decision. But that that does underscore why it's extremely important that you have diversity in fields like medicine because – you you know, you're more aware of the things that go on in your community. And so you would think a doctor that's an African-American physician would be more likely to be aware of patients that have cystic fibrosis, excuse me, patients that have um, sickle cell disease. And the reason I mentioned cystic fibrosis is because <clears throat> you will remember that you would see all of these fundraisers and telethons on TV for cystic fibrosis, Right. Right. And cystic fibrosis is more rare than sickle cell disease. You've never seen 
Wow. Nationwide fundraisers for sickle cell disease. But sickle cell disease is probably two to three times more common um, cystic fibrosis in the United States. But there's a lot more money and research that goes to cystic fibrosis as compared to sickle cell disease. Cystic fibrosis would be almost like the corollary of sickle cell for Caucasians. It's a rare disease. Um, it's recessively inherited, and it causes a shorter lifespan. It's a chronic disease that causes problems, a chronic genetic disease that causes recurring and relapsing problems in kids that have a shortened lifespan. And um, there's a lot more research going on, a lot more money going into it, and despite the fact that it's a lot less common. It has, so, to, do with public, um, it has to do with publicity and research and money and... Mm-hmm. So a couple of things that I want to ask everybody to do. One, go to sicklecelldisease.org. That's one of the sites. There's a lot of sites out there, believe it or not. But go to sicklecelldisease.org. They have like a calendar of events of different things that are going on right now. So that would be one thing. The other thing is find out if you have a local sickle cell organization and see, ask them what their needs are, how they can help, who do they serve. Get information and disseminate it with your fraternity, your sorority, your church groups, you know, whatever organizations you're a part of. You know, get the information and, and disseminate it. Um, and, you know, also, like, be aware of your young people. If, if you see them and, you know, they're out playing and they, you know, have some sort of, uh, difficulty, you know, out there playing, find out what's going on with them, make sure that they're hydrated. And also, you will probably see a lot of blood drives. I even was hoping to, to organize one this month, um, and, and I'm going to do a better job of that. But there are a lot of blood drives out there. And even though, and it may they may or may not be related with um, National Sickle Cell Awareness Month, but, you know, if, if chance and you're able to, you know, they in Central Florida we have one blood and the big red bus, you will see them at the shopping centers and other places stop and donate some blood if you can uh, make sure you are hydrated please but stop and, and snacked up and everything like that but um, stop and donate some blood if it doesn't necessarily help a person with sickle cell it may help someone else and right now uh, because of all of the disasters and other things that we have going on right now there is a national blood shortage right now so go ahead and donate some blood if you can this month um, so we're going to take a break. We are here with Dr. Taiwan Tillman. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about, um, yes, it's, it's, it's there again. It never really went away, but it's evolving. COVID. We're going to talk about the new vaccine and some other things when we come back. This is G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment, and we will be right back. This is Douglas Dobbs of Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community for 29 years with quality funeral and cremation services. Honoring all religions and faiths, we have been here for many grieving families. Whether it's a complete funeral service with a burial or a simple dignified cremation, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here for you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs dedicated to serving our families. Hi, I'm Tim Garris. Uh, You may know me as Timmy G. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's been two decades, but I want you to know I'm back in the Arkansas. And I've got a mix of music that can help you relax and chill out. 
It's smooth. It's relaxing. It's chill out jazz. The soulful mix of smooth jazz, soul, and smooth R&B. So join me every Wednesday night, 10 p.m. to midnight, on KHAM Radio. Are you chilling? Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we are talking with Dr. Taiwan Tillman about, well, and we were just talking about sickle cell. If you missed that conversation, save the link. You know, well, we, you'll, you can listen to it again. Um, but we want to move on to the new COVID vaccine and uh, talk about COVID in general. And so uh, because the cases apparently are on the rise again um, and the time to kind of readjust our thinking. I think a lot of us were just thinking, okay, the next, the thing we have to think about now that is flu season, but nope, we've got more. Tell us a little bit about the new vaccine, doctor. Well, like you said, COVID's back, but it never really went away. Yeah. And I think one thing I think that's important to note about COVID, COVID is, is a coronavirus, and it's always been here. COVID's always been here. There's all these different versions of COVID um, viruses and coronaviruses. And so when you think about a common cold, it was one of the more common viruses, coronaviruses that cause a common cold. They're coronaviruses and introviruses and rhinoviruses. And it just so happens that this particular version of the of a COVID coronavirus happened to be very virulent, and it happened to cause to infect lower respiratory system more so than upper respiratory system. So when you think of a common cold, you're thinking runny nose, congestion, sore throat, those types of things. That's upper respiratory. Lower respiratory is the lungs themselves and the airways. And so that's more likely to lead to problems with pneumonia and sepsis and the things that can, you know, lead to all the problems that we were seeing with COVID where you get intubated and, you know, you have bad pneumonia and can possibly die from it. And so that's the big difference with the old or common coronaviruses that that have been causing common colds for years and the old common – and then the new, more virulent, you know, novel coronavirus, COVID-19, that we've been dealing with for the past few years. And, of course, these viruses change and mutate all the time, and you get different versions of them, just like you do with the flu virus. And what it's sort of mutated into now is sort of a relatively mild, milder form of the um, COVID-19 virus that we've been dealing with, right? And um, so you're, we're still seeing it. It's starting to uptick again, but you're not seeing the same problems because it's not as deadly and not as you know potent as it was before and uh but it's still here so having said that there is a new vaccine um that's been approved from two companies the ones that we are probably all very familiar with right now pfizer and moderna i think there's another another that's waiting approval as well and the cdc as of last week recommended approved and recommended these viruses for everyone over the age of six months and I think for if you're five years old or older, it should be a single shot um, vaccine. The vaccine is newly formulated based on the uh, more recent forms of the uh, COVID-19 virus that have been seen. It's very similar to the flu vaccine where because the flu virus, you know, mutates every year and because there are different strains that are more common year by year, they determine what to put in the vaccine based on the common strains that they're seeing 
out in the population. And it's always difficult because there's always a lag. So you determine what's in the population, you make the virus based on that, and then three months later you have your virus, and then by that time it's already changed a little bit, and so you still you're always lagging behind a little bit. And there's no different this um, current newly approved COVID vaccine, but I what they have been able to at least what they're saying they have determined is that despite the fact that it has mutated a bit since they actually made the concoction, the current virus, current virus, that, excuse me, the current vaccine that's approved, it still has reactivity or activity against the uh, current variants that are more common in the population right now. It is also an mRNA vaccine like the previous vaccines were, so it's made, you know, with the same science and technology that the other vaccines are made from. And uh, it's, you know, it's been proven to be very um, beneficial and at least preventing severe um, episodes of COVID. And I think from my standpoint or my opinion is, or my question that I would have about it, as the virus becomes less and less problematic where it's not making people severely ill, where it's not causing deaths and all these other problems, do we continue to vaccinate for it? I mean, we don't vaccinate for a common cold. We're not chasing a common cold around. Although the common cold can cause, you know, thousands of deaths every year, at what point do we decide that we don't need to continue to chase, continue to chase um, COVID with vaccines and, you know, every six months or nine months or 12 months? And that's ultimately, you know, something for the CDC to decide but based on the current data that they have the uh, number of hospitalizations that they're seeing from the current um, mutant of COVID that we have, they're suggesting that most people do take the vaccine for the, that was recently approved last week. Let me ask you, doctor, I, I, there just seems to be um, a battle, it seems, in the last several years between uh, politicians or the government in the medical community in terms of what information should be out there and, and who and how it should be disseminated. Um, and how in, in, do you perceive that um, it, or is that a wrong perception? And what, how is it, in your opinion, how is it impacting the community at large in terms of getting the information and help and treatment that they need uh, it's it's a real problem within the medical community there's not a lot of um, dissent or a lot of um, doubt about what needs done and the direction that we go at any given time however the politics of it is a completely different story and you know they they will find you know some fringe their fringe physicians just like there's fringes in every other part of society, and you can find fringe fringe physicians on either side of an argument that they can put on TV, and a lot of the problems that are being driven as far as with the media and with politicians and with the public, it's it's polit it's politically related, right? It's not doesn't necessarily have to do with science and people also try to politicize science but science if you re if you really know science it's hard to politicize science but when you have a lot of information that's easily available online to the general public that 
they don't understand the science, they don't understand the statistics, then, you know, individuals politicize it, and then it can go on to Facebook and on Twitter and on to everything else. And at that point, you know, other people read it, it's disseminated, and they assume it to be true. Whereas it probably just an opinion of a random person that doesn't have any knowledge about the information that they're disseminating. And so then all of a sudden, you have something that's been retweeted, you know, hundreds of thousands of times that was never true that then becomes somebody's Facebook page that then becomes the gospel to a large group of people. And it creates problems for us when, you know, when we see these patients, you know, we can, I always tell my patients, my job is to educate them, help them have the information to make the right choice. It's their job whether or not they, what they decide to do with that information. I'm not here to make them do anything or force them to do anything, but my job is to guide them, give them the correct information, and they have to decide what they want to do with that. And that's the difference is when you're reading it online, you don't have anybody helping you interpret the information and helping you, you know, explain to you exactly what this research means, what an MRA, what an mRNA vaccine is, what the possible side effects are, why you may get these side effects, are those side effects good or bad? And it ends up, you know, it's created the problem that we have. But as far as within the medical community, we have doubts about um, about how the vaccines work, whether or not vaccines, you know, damage DNA and all these other things. No, because we know, we know, we understand how the vaccines work. We know that the vaccines don't actually enter the nucleus of the cell. They, they don't alter DNA and things like that, that, you know, most people just don't understand. And it creates a, it creates a problem as far as getting patients vaccinated or creates a problem as far as getting patients to come to the hospital. And it's been, you know, it's been a problem as we've gone through this pandemic where we are now, I think um, I don't I don't know where it's going to go going forward from here. My hope it just becomes much less much less of an issue because COVID just sort of fades into the background, like some of these other viruses that we've had that have been sort of endemic over the past few years, and then ultimately that it just sort of fades into the background and we don't have to worry about keeping you know continuing to do this song and dance of COVID and being politicized and talking about masks and talking about talking about vaccines and so forth. Okay. As you'll notice, the, the, the flu virus, the, the flu vaccine isn't so much politicized. Other vaccines, you know, they're not politicized. People won't say, I'm not going to take right. this vaccine. You know, they have no problems taking it. Right. Okay. We're going to take our final break. We're coming back with Dr. Taiwan Tillman to talk more about the new COVID vaccine and um, COVID uh, prevention and protocols. This is G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment, and we will be right back. This is Douglas Dobbs, owner and funeral director at Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service. We have served the Central Florida community with two generations of family funeral service. With the recent addition of my son Brandon, we are here to take care of the needs of Central and West Orlando. From simple cremation to a full burial, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service is here to help you. Located at 430 North Kirkman Road at the 408 Expressway, Dobbs Cremation and Funeral Service, 407-578-7720. Dobbs dedicated to serving our families. Hi, I'm Tim Garrison, and I think I found a way to help you understand what is Chill Out Jazz. Some of y'all may think of you, because of the style we choose, we make jazz and R&B. We don't categorize, we just make more sound good, baby. It's a jazz. It is what 
Good afternoon. Welcome back to G's Power Hour on Never Had It So Good Entertainment. I am your host, G. Thanks so much for being with us today. And we're here talking with cardiologist Dr. Taiwan Tillman. And uh, we aren't taking questions because this is a pre-recorded show. But if you do have questions or comments, please feel free to hit me up on the G's Power Hour Facebook page. I can always forward your comments and concerns to uh, and your questions to Dr. Tillman. And hopefully, God willing, we'll talk about it next month. But in the meantime, uh, so Dr. Tillman, mask or no mask, what type of mask? You know, I got my Buccaneer mask. I got my USF mask. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I got to throw that in there. But, you know, uh, because I think just to me, I think there's a, a um, I don't know, a perception or just kind of a, a, a un, uneasy feeling when you see somebody with a mask, uh, a hospital mask or a medical mask walking around in, in Walmart or something like that. So, but mm-hmm. just for the sake of our own health and for the sake of the health of our family and friends, loved ones, community, what should we be doing right now? I think, I don't, I don't think we're at a point right now where masks are necessary they may be necessary for some people. So I would say at-risk populations, so elderly patients, particularly elderly patients that may have chronic illnesses such as heart failure, um, lung disease, COPD, emphysema, um, renal patients, end-stage renal disease, dialysis patients. Those are patients, or we were talking about sickle cell earlier, patients that have uh, risk for infections. So sickle cell patients fall into that group. Um, any patients that are on chemotherapy and that are immunocompromised for any reason. Those are all patients where even though the newer coronavirus or COVID virus is not as harmful as the, some of the prior versions, those are patients that are still at higher risk just because of other comorbid medical problems that they have. And so they may want to, if they're in public, wear a mask. They may want to wear a mask at the grocery store. They may want to wear a mask on a plane or a bus. They may want to wear a mask when they go to their doctor's office where there may be other people that may be sick. And that should certainly be encouraged and not discouraged. And um, the thing about masks, you know, a lot of these respiratory illnesses, they're, they can be airborne. They can be, be spread by droplets and in contact and you know, the way you minimize that is a mask will minimize the droplets that you sneeze out mm-hmm. and, you know, breathe out and so forth. And so, you know, it's a physical barrier. It's sort of common sense. It's just as much common sense as washing your hands and, and cleaning surfaces in areas, di- disinfecting surfaces. And so that can reduce the risk of transmission in these cases. So there's no reason not to do it. And, um, okay, you know, masks are not harmful. They don't harm anybody. So if Someone decides to right. wear a mask, you know, there's no reason to criticize that person wearing a mask because they're trying to protect themselves. You don't know what their medical problems may be. And even before we had the COVID pandemic, if you saw someone that had to travel to a specialty center for some type of cancer treatment and they're getting back on their plane or they're walking through a lobby or they're wearing a mask because they know they have cancer, they're immunocompromised, and a common cold could kill them. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's no different. These you know, patients that are elderly, 
they're an increased increased risk. They want to wear a mask. It's certainly more than reasonable. Should it be yeah. mandated? Should we have mask mandates? That's you know that's sort of beyond the scope of what I'm involved with, and probably this conversation right. as well. But um, in general, you know, it should be encouraged if someone wants to wear a mask or they feel that they're at risk, then certainly masks should be encouraged for them. Okay, good to know. Thank you, doctor. So um, now, um, other types of protocol, uh, um, cleaners and stuff like that. You know, I think people who, you know, maybe not have not done chemicals so much in the past are now saying, okay, or, or having to consider using something like, uh, what do you use? Because uh, um, I'm my, I, you know, I'm like, do, do I go back to I guess the the earlier panic that I had, and I'm wiping down doorknobs and and light switches and and all that kind of with Lysol wipes and all that type of stuff. Are those things? I mean, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, you know. But should I should I be that type of concerned again in terms of that? I I don't I I don't want to say yes, and I don't want to say no because I'm not sure. Okay. One of the things, so early on when we first had the pandemic starting, one of the things that made this virus such a problem is its ability, its infectiousness, its ability to to spread from person to person or the likelihood that one person could spread it to a number within a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know, I, I haven't seen any data on this current version of the COVID virus to know you know, how, how virulent is this virus? How easy is it to spread? And um, so, I, you know, if it's just something as simple, if it's no more easy to spread than the common cold that we typically see, then, mm-hmm. you know, you probably don't need to go overboard like we did when we were at the peak of the pandemic. Um, if they find out that it is, and maybe it's something we can we should consider, it's probably somewhere in between because it seems to be okay. as we get – farther and farther from the peak of the pandemic and the most severe form of this um, virus that it tends to be getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And so, you know, it's, it, if I had to guess though, if you're asking my guess, the answer is probably you don't need to be as vigilant doing all those, all those protocols and cleaning and so forth as you were before. Cause I remember the first started, I remember the first patient that I dealt with that had COVID you know, I after I, I had to do a procedure on a patient that came in emergently. And, you know, of course, we were wearing masks and eye shields and wrapping everything, double gloves and double layers of scrubs and everything. Afterwards, I completely stripped down and avoided touching doors and, you know, showered and threw my clothes in the trash. <laughs> and, you know, then, yeah. you know, but then two, weeks, two weeks later, it was just like any other, you know, you put a mask and eye shields on and it was just like anything else. And, you know, now somebody comes up with COVID and you don't even think twice about, you know, because at that time you just thought these clothes need to be burned. And I don't, you know, you never knew what was next. But now we have a lot more experience with it. We're not so concerned about it. Um, the virus isn't as problematic as it was before. And so you don't have to, I don't say you don't treat it with the same level of respect, but you don't have to be quite as afraid. And, you know, it's not so altering every aspect of your life on a daily basis. Yeah, I I 
I know some of that has changed for me too. I, I feel sorry for my clothes because I'm wearing them out <laughs> just by washing them so much. Washing, you know, I mean, yeah. it used to be I would wear something, you know, for a few hours and then maybe I would hang it back up to wear another time if I didn't sweat in it or whatever. But now, oh my gosh, just COVID in those clothes. So they go directly right. into the hamper and then they get they get washed after one wear. And I'm like, oh my, so I'm buying more clothes because. <laughs> You know, right, I could only right. wear them once, and then <laughs> I switched over from Clorox too, and I'm doing the, uh, was it the Lysol laundry sanitizer and everything? Mm-hmm. Because, oh my God, the clothes have COVID in them, you know, and I'm showering <laughs> twice a day. If I go out, you got mm-hmm. you know, a shower before I go out, a shower after I go out, you know, a shower after the pool, well, mm-hmm. that's chlorine and stuff. But yeah, it is just you know, it's just kind of turned. You know, I, you know, it, it's not a bad thing. I, you know, I'm I'm a better safe than sorry type of person, so it's not necessarily right. a bad thing. It's just an inconvenient thing, and then also you just don't know whether it's a necessary thing. Right. So. But I, I would tell Dr. you, T- Lysol probably agrees that it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess I just did a commercial for them. Anyway, Doctor <laughs> Tillman. How do people uh, find you? How do they follow you? You know, get more information. You can find me on Instagram at Taiwan Tillman. Easy to find. Or just Google my name. You'll find me in multiple places if you Google me. Spell Taiwan because they want to know how to spell Taiwan. That is true. T-Y-W-A-U-N <laughs> Tillman, T-I-L-L-M-A-N. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Tillman. Look forward to having you back next month. You have a blessed day, well, day, afternoon, week, month. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. You do the same. Take care. And thank you all for listening. God willing, talk to you all tomorrow. This has been G's Power Hour. I never had it so good entertainment. Be well, be safe, be blessed, and please remember all real power comes from God. Drink water, y'all. Take care.